Welcome to Get Rich Without Being a Bitch. This is the place to hear real and raw conversations about what it takes for female entrepreneurs to achieve financial success and live a rich life. I'm Vanessa Shaw, author of The Million Dollar Question and your hostess for this podcast. Hey, Pam Brooks, really welcome to the podcast, Get Rich Without Being a Bitch. We are going to be talking fun conversations today about money, career, boundaries, assertiveness. And I'm just super, super excited to have you here with me today and to share a, you know, your wealth of experience with our listeners, because I know you've got a ton to add. Uh, just by way of introduction as well, for those of you that are tuning in and listening to this podcast today, I'm going to give you a quick bit of background about Pam. She is a human performance specialist, founded her company over 17 years ago to help people and organizations reach their full potential. Pam's trademarks are her passion for her work and her vast research into the many ways to understand and increase human performance. She was recently certified as a facilitator of Brené Brown's Dare to Lead program and is also a certified practitioner and coach of conversational intelligence by Judith Glazer. She trains coaches and consultants in her suite of compass reports that get right to the core of emotion and logic that drives human performance. And in her spare time, I'm not quite sure how much spare time she actually has after doing all of these amazing things. She loves <laughs> riding, hiking, and sailing. And actually, when I first met you here, you and I had kind of met virtually before we were involved in an assessment way back when, when I was living back in Europe, and we were both using a, the same assessment tool. And I do remember when I first met you here in Phoenix, I think it was you you know, like I'd cycled about 50 miles around Phoenix and ended up in my neck of the woods and we met. And I was just <laughs> super impressed by like this amazingly intelligent, sporty, athletic woman that turned up at my doorway. So anyway, Pam, I'm just like really welcome. First and foremost, welcome. I'm excited for our conversation. Well, I'm excited to be a part of it. It has been a few years in the making. I have watched you develop your program now over the course of the past few years, and it's been exciting to see that growth and the number of people involved. So, you know, kind of that full soul, it's really great to be back and to be part of this. So excited to be in the interview with you and share from my experience to see if there's anything I can do to help other people that are in your program. Totally right. And it's like, again, real and raw conversations. So what I'd love to, you know, kind of, you know, part of this is definitely going to be about money. Um, what I'd love to know is just to dive in really deep into your background, you know, growing up, um, I know a lot of us have those early experiences, not always positive around money, but what were some of your own you know, childhood experiences as it relates to money and growing up? Wow, uh, there wasn't any. <laughs> um, both of my parents worked very hard, very industrial, um, hardworking people, but um, they had only been through high school. They didn't have any college experience. And so they worked hard to get what they had. We never spent what we didn't have. So money was, if you have it, you pay cash for whatever it is you need. And if you don't have it, you don't go in debt over it. So very, very practical from that standpoint, but not a lot on growth potential or, you know, oh my gosh, this is what you're worth or here's what you could make or, you know, that kind of stuff. They, they you know, were very smart. They, 
had their insurance, they kept themselves covered, that kind of thing. But um, if, if you want to say race in a neighborhood, I was in the have nots neighborhood and I got to look across at governors, ch- children and other people and kind of go, wow, there's another life out there. And I don't know what this. Yeah. So, so in- yeah, just a, a different humble experience. I want to yeah. So, so interesting, right? You know, again, I think those early childhood experiences around money, and as you say, the haves and the have nots, often with my own story, you know, I talk about the scripting that I grew up with, which basically said, you know, people like us don't, uh, you know, don't have that kind of money. And it really gave me this indication very early on in life that, yes, yeah, some people either have it and some people don't. Um, I was, I certainly grew up, I mean, not drastically uncomfortable. I don't remember really wanting for, you know, tons and tons of things as a child. Uh, but there was definitely that sense of we had what we needed, but there, there really weren't many extras. Uh, it sounds like, you know, a little bit like your parents, my, certainly my mother was pretty frugal and savvy around, you know, taking care of money and just making sure that, you know, there were budgets in place and it, and it kind of money did what it needed to do to take care mm-hmm. of us. So I'm curious um, to then find out about, you know, how was that background around money and your, you know, growing up in that environment? How has that then informed, you know, you going into business for yourself and particularly when it comes to like claiming your own worth? Because of course, those of us that are in business for ourselves, we get to set largely our fees and decide those things. I'm curious, what's been your journey there, Pam? Um, I want to say it's been a long road because not coming into business with, I want to say a real sound thing of saying, here's what you're worth. Like, here's the monetary, here's how much you should make, or here's how much you could make as a background. I just worked really hard, love what I did and was not really good in my early years of putting boundaries down saying, no, this is what I'm worth and you need to pay me that you know, because you don't want to sound like you're over demanding and even round up in a few situations where I started to put boundaries down and people would push back up against it and then feel like, oh gosh, maybe I'm not worthy of that because I'm getting the pushback. So it's been, I want to say a struggle over the past, um, probably five to years of saying, no, here's what I'm worth. Here's what I demand. And what's fascinating is I think there's also been a shift from when I first got into business to now for women to be able to ask more for what they're worth. And you can even see it in the research that's being done now in terms of women being able to step up and and ask for it. And, you know, going through Brene's training, it was fascinating to hear that she's experienced the same thing. Um, You know, here's this person you look up to and you go, Oh my gosh, she's like this world renowned speaker. And she does these amazing things. And she shared from her experience, even that, she started doing a lot of keynotes and she was up giving a presentation and there was a manager that worked with some of the other men in the industry and pulled her aside after her keynote and said, man, you just nailed it. That was awesome. She said, Brene, but I have to have a serious conversation with you. And she said, what? And she said, you're taking the keynotes, the beginning and the close. So you should be making more money. And right now you're making a third of what these other speakers are. Wow. And said, I, I, I'm telling this because if you don't demand what you're worth, it's going to make it harder for every female that comes after you. And so now she does. She's had that difficult conversation with herself and now she does. And and I had to go through it even in my position at ASU where 
I knew what I was worth and I knew what I was doing was creating results. And I had to have at least two or three difficult conversations with the VP of HR saying, okay, here's the deal. If I finish this project and you have to compensate by doing X, Y, Z and, and knowing that you can do that without being ego, without being um, like you're begging, but just having that honest conversation of saying, here's, I've done my research. This is what it's worth. And this is what it is because if you don't get paid the level of what you're valued at, then there's that disgruntled feeling and mm. they've done the research and they know that if people get what they're valued at, you don't put money in the way anymore. Money goes away. You don't think about money when you get paid what you're worth, but when you're not getting paid what you're worth, that's where you feel frustrated. That's where you feel anxious. That's where you want to, you know, you go from the one extreme of crying in the corner going, I'm not worth it to the other extreme of being defensive and saying, no, damn it, I am. And being across too aggressive. So yeah, it's, it's been that, how do you gain the confidence and the knowledge about what you're worth so that you can very professionally lay out, here's what my expectations are and then negotiate from there. So yeah, it's, I love it's that. been you a know, struggle, I- but it's fascinating now getting in. Go ahead. Yeah, no, I was going to say, I love, it. you know, particularly Brené, right? You know, I mean, she's like one of my sheroes. I mean, absolutely love her, love her work. So I remember when you shared with me, you know, that story beforehand, I was like, wow, like somebody like Brené struggles with this. And, you know, and you shared, you know, her own internal struggle about asking for more. And, you know, it was the fact that she knew full well that she wasn't taking a stand for other women if she didn't like demand what she was worth and really what the market was willing to, to pay. And I'm curious, you know, for you, Pam, like, you know, what are some of those practical tools um, that you've had to dig into to really navigate the discomfort? Because for a lot of us, even having the money conversation in the first place is really uncomfortable. Just talking about money is uncomfortable. Secondly, when we start to tie it to our own sense of worth or value or contribution, you know, it can, it can feel somewhat subjective right? If we believe we're worth more and somebody else doesn't. So kind of like practically, can you unpick that a little bit more for the listeners, for somebody that's struggling with that as to how do they even approach it? A, from the psychology and the mindset perspective, but then in terms of starting to put like real numbers around it so that they can negotiate. Um, the first thing for me to really unravel, and it was interesting, I read about it today as well, that you have to go back to where your first apprehensions are. So I know the first time that I worked with a multimillionaire CEO who had developed this company, there was that part of me going, who are you and are you worthy of even contributing to this guy? I mean, he's got this vast empire, right? Mm-hmm. And I had to step back and go, where's coming? coming childhood of not growing up with the money, right? And going, I'm not that person. I'm a new person. And this guy has sought me out. Not that I went to him, but he sought me out for information. And my information is so valuable. He sought me out. So yes, it is worth money. And even he, I want to say, knew it was worth that. And I had sought out a couple mentors. And that's another thing that help you. It's like, who else is out there that's kind of doing what you're doing that you can talk to about what's realistic in the market? Um, what could you charge? Obviously there's times that if I'm doing something for a not-for-profit, I don't mind putting some, some like, okay, I'll do it at a, a lower expense, but it's the same thing with Brene. When you know your worth and you know what's there, you need to ask for it. And I have also found that in a lot of situations, because I've worked with other consultants under me, that 
you go, okay, well, I'm, I'm just going to give it away this time. I'm going to do this workshop. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do it for free. Yep. The problem is, is that people don't value it then. And so they don't take it to heart. And there's something about actually asking what you're worth that is so important because then they actually value what it is that they're getting because it's like, wow, this is costing me something. So I'm going to put my heart and soul into it because I'm putting some money out there to get something back from it. And sometimes when you go, oh, it's free, they're like, yeah, well, you know, if it's free, then it's not worth anything. So there's that other kind of edge of, yes, you need to do some research. You need to dig and look at what's, what are other people doing in the marketplace. And you also have to look at the value of what's the return on investment that that person's getting for the service that you provide. So for me, I had to dig because I do a lot of staffing of CEOs and CFOs. And when they have turnover, it can cost them up to 30% of a three-figure job. Mm -hmm. So I go in and I only charge an hourly basis to really provide them with information when I should be charging a percentage of what it costs them to get a good employee to start getting your value. What is it that that's the return? Because when you go in to talk to somebody, it's not that I'm just selling my hours or I'm selling me, I'm selling you this outcome. And this is what that outcome is worth to you. And so it's that ability to kind of put it out there and say, here's, here's what it is that I'm doing. Here's what it's worth. And then it's not about you. It's not about your identity. It's about I'm doing something significant. Yeah. It's so important. I think you said you, you just gave so many gems there. I think first and foremost, right. I mean, it's the going back to the roots, right? I love that you said that Pam with such clarity of, you know, it's in that moment of discomfort, acknowledging it and then stopping enough to kind of go, where did this come from? Right. And just saying, right. That was in my past. That was then I kind of, I understand the story and you know, this is presumably quite a few decades later, right? It's like, I'm no longer that person. So I think that's, that gives so much power when we just have this self-awareness to say, where did it come from? But then as you say, you know, obviously having mentors and coaches that can support you and kind of, you know, you know, you know, let you know that you're not crazy or that actually you should be charging more or other people are charging more. And did you realize that kind of reality check, but then bringing it right round to at the end of the day, Oftentimes, I think we get that really entangled with ourselves and our self-worth and our identity, this kind of pricing and fees when it's not about us. It's ultimately, as you said, the outcome that that client wants. And there's a massive cost for them of, you know, to them for staying stuck or not solving the problem adequately. Um, And your fees are probably going to be a percentage of that, which really establishes that value and that ROI. So, kind of interesting how we run the whole spectrum of past the psychology to kind of market yeah. research, right? To then like value for the client and the outcomes that we're providing that is grounded in understanding that you're bringing a lot of expertise to the table as well. But if the, the reality is if you don't get past the psychological part, you don't dig deep enough to get the other part of it out there. And then once you deal with that other part that allows you to step forward with the confidence and say, now I've done my research and I am worthy of this. And and here you go. I did a a seminar at ASU this um, last October on the imposter syndrome. And it is absolutely fascinating to note that around 70% of us at some time or another will suffer from the imposter syndrome, which is that that's something that says, I'm not worthy. Who am I? If they really mm. heard me, I'm really, they know, they, are they going to think I'm a fake? And I think we go through that in our minds a lot. 
And so it was fascinating. I had 110 people in the workshop and I wound up running into some of them at the end of the day. And one of the things I really emphasized in the workshop, because I talked about the different types of imposters, was just to look around the room at how many other people were raising their hands with a different issue. And then I had them talk about solutions and ways to resolve their particular imposter feeling, right? And they just, best thing that they learned all day was that they weren't the only one. And I think sometimes mm-hmm. that's the hardest part is we, when we become, I want to say, with that lack of confidence and that fear, we pull ourselves away from the support that we need to become larger. And so that was their first aha moment to actually recognize and go, oh, I'm not the only one. Wow, this is huge. And it's like that alone was like freeing for them. Yeah. So, I mean, God, there's, I mean, as you say, there's so many levels to this, right? But I, I'm a, you know, you and I speak the same language on this. Like if we don't understand like the emotional psychological block, we don't get beyond it. And, um, you know, imposter syndrome has been massive for me over the years. You know, my, my backstory was of stay at home mom supporting Robert in a global career and really great at running the home and bringing up two kids. And then I went from there, you know, entrepreneur, sorry, stay at home mom, right into setting up my own business and, and then landed a, you know, corporate contract right out the gate with people that were very, very successful, um, kind of in that peak performance, like corporate peak performance world. And I, I struggled with imposter syndrome probably for about three years solidly before I opened up about it. And, and I didn't even know that it had a name to it, you know, back then. <laughs> yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> I didn't know that it was a thing. And it was somebody else that shared with me that, you know, you know, whatever it was, is like 90% of people, you know, successful people struggle with it. And I was like, really? Thought it was me. I was, I was permanently worried that they were going. You know, as a corporate coach, I was going to be found out to be just a housewife, and you know, my skill set didn't really go beyond like baking a good banana bread or something like that. <laughs> I, I mean, seriously, that was like the story in my mind, but it was so paralyzing. And as you know, to that point, one of the things I've noticed, because interestingly, again, full transparency, launching a podcast for me has started to bring that up. You know, I mean, I've been listening to other similar podcasts. I'm inspired by some other amazing women that are doing great things on podcasts. And I could feel that whole little voice coming up again. You're not ready. Are people going to listen? Who do you think you are to be doing a podcast? I mean, all of those (laughs) things. And about the only, the only good bit of news that I can, you know, out of my learnings from this really and truly now from 15 years since when I first discovered imposter syndrome is that it rears its ugly head when we're typically about to step outside of our comfort zone. Yep. I at least kind of, as you say, like recognize it for what it is and kind of go, oh good, I'm stretching and growing. And this is why this is coming up again. But uh, yeah, su- super interesting how those things, you know, we often say it's the same, same you know, new level, similar devil, right? That still comes back yep. To, to plague us. I'm just curious as well, you know, Pam, what I'd love to delve into just to switch gears a little bit on this, because, you know, you and I've both got a ton of experience of working, you know, consulting and coaching. And, you know, I, we've got a lot of people that we've worked with at this point in time. But one of the things I really appreciate about the work that you do is you use a lot of research as well. 
Um, you know, research is not my thing. I always have to get other people <laughs> to do it for me. It's not my happy place. I have about a five minute attention span typically. And thankfully there are people in the world like yourself that, you know, really delve into it and geek out on it. But I'm curious as well as to, you know, some of the, you know, the research that you've uncovered that's really relevant to this conversation around the the differences and the way that men and women are perceived differently when they are asking for things like a promotion or more money. And you've said, you know, you've got to advocate for yourself. But the research really shows us some very interesting data points there of perception. And could you just share a little bit more with the listeners about what you've dug up? Absolutely. Um, and I, I went back today to even pull some of it up. There has been research done by Stanford and Penn State and Harvard and just kind of this ongoing negotiation for pay. And so one of the initial studies, which is a lot older, was done back in like uh, 2004, where they finally started looking at, do we negotiate and, and do we ask for more money? And it was really low back then, even for men and women. Men asked at around 12%, women at 4%. So these are Harvard business graduates. Do they go ask for more money? And the average ask was from somewhere between three thousand and uh you know fifteen hundred dollars extra per year and it was fascinating because when they look at the stats on the people most of them were completely equal or the women almost had more advanced degrees and experience and didn't ask and so they went into a second study then and they said well why is this what is it about men and women that men will tend to ask more but even some men don't and and women really don't ask so let's let's get to some of the underpinnings of it so they looked at um the opinions of the interviewers of the people asking for more money and they discovered that men interviewing men um not much change they ex- almost expected it some of them actually hailed higher you know, some might've thought a little bit less and men didn't really shift their opinion. If a woman asked for more money, well, the fascinating part was that for women interviewing men, if the man asked for more money, there was a slight shift more so than from their male counterparts and interviewers, but women who were interviewing women and women asked for more money, that shift was very significant and women thought less of women asking for more money. And so you look at that and go, wow, we sometimes are our own worst enemy and Mm. looked, you know, today I was pulling up some new research on managers and promotions. So another one, like, do women ask for promotions? Do women ask for more money in promotions? Um, How likely is it that, that things are going on? And they did some work with both male and female managers looking down on people and having ratings of things. And it's still discovered that women will think male managers are better than female managers. And yet male managers now actually kind of more equally look at both males and females in terms of their abilities. The one catch is, is that men don't tend to give the same type of promotion opportunities to women. So like the, the reach they can either, like one study that was done in, in um, I want to say India, in the high tech area, that the women were getting these at-risk positions. It's kind of like, yeah, they're not going to make it, so we're going to give it to them. Let them fail at it, right? Fail out. 
whereas they would give a man a, pos- a, a promotion or a, a project that would be something that they are going to gain experience on. And so you look at this research where we as women still downplay ourselves in front of men or think that they're more superior or that we downplay another female trying to get in and to do that work and go, wow, we still have that. We have our own glass ceiling. That's not even opposed outside. We still do it to ourselves. Mm. I'm fascinating. And then, you know, that women, you know, women that are interviewing other women who ask for more money, uh, you know, regarded less than their male counterparts. I mean, you know, and I'm not, don't know if, you know, if the research went into that, or even if you have your own opinion as to, you know, what do you think is at the root of all of this? (laughs) The same stuff that we're battling today, our childhood. Um, I, I know that, There's some shifts happening, but even a a recent study that was done by the law school on looking at jury's opinion of male and female lawyers giving their closing remarks. They had the exact same closing remarks and a male went up and gave the closing remarks and then the female did. And when they gave them in a general neutral tone, they were both perceived pretty equally. But when the man went in and started to become more aggressive and assertive, his ratings went way up. And when the female did it, her ratings went way down. And so that's one issue that I think we still face in the workforce. I, I, I know I have a couple situations now where there's a manager that he thinks a female who is being assertive is being aggressive. Mm. And her differently. And, 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 I, and so when I'm working with people like that and he says, oh God, she's just like that. And I go... So can I ask the question, if, if that were a male in that position and he had responded in that way, would you still respond the same? Or is it something about the fact that she's being assertive that's not normal to you to think of a female being assertive that's creating a, a dissonance or a disconnect between them? And so for me, when I see it, the, again, it's one of those recognize it, identify it, and then you can talk about it in order to make that shift. And he was like, I never thought of it like that. Mm. You know, so I've had to raise his level of awareness of himself and what he was doing. And it's showed up in a lot of research from the law school and even, I want to say, managers or women in meetings. Women who tend to be more aggressive or more assertive tend to be seen in the negative light, whereas men in the same situation are like, yeah, we expect it. So where do we shift that about ourselves? And the only way is to wrestle with it, understand it, and then bring it up in a discussion. Yeah. And again, right. It's murky, it's murky waters. Cause I know for myself, you know, that there's times when I'll hold back for fear of, you know, what well, I'm going to be considered bitchy or too forceful <laughs> or, you know, um, yeah. and again, it's that just that place where actually I just want to establish a boundary here, or I'm being very clear or, you know, in my perceptions, I'm being very clear. I'm being assertive. This isn't aggressive. Um, but yet I also know, I mean, you know, and this goes back to childhood. I grew up with three brothers um, and certainly, you know, if I behaved in a certain way, I could be called out on it very, very quickly, um, which caused me for a long time to then, as you said, you kind of dim your light or you hold back for fear of what other people start to think of you. And then it becomes that self-perpetuating cycle that's very, very, you know, tricky to navigate. Um, I had an interest part of a panel discussion before one of the ASU women's basketball games. Um, in December, and they had one of the leaders of the um, 
Super Bowl group in town. She's one of the high NFL leaders to bring the Super Bowl back to AZ um, and a couple other leaders. And this whole topic kind of came up. And the, the, the big thing that they talked about is to get advocates who speak for you when you're not present. So you don't have to be the tough one. And I found that really fascinating that they're really bringing this attention and both of them could pinpoint one or two people at different times that became their advocate within the industry so that they didn't have to be the overly assertive because somebody else stepped in and did it for them. Um, And I, I don't want to say that that's something that you have to do because sometimes we have to have those difficult conversations. But then I reflected on myself and um, I know we talked at one point about my work in the assessment industry and there were mm. times that I swear I was put in the position to be this like staunch, stubborn female and totally filling their self-fulfilling prophecies of being a, a total bitch, right? Because mm. I'm trying to stand up for what's important. And it wasn't until I got an advocate who actually understood it to present the story for me to the same group of people that it went, oh, wow, I, I, I never realized it from that perspective. And I, so I reflect on myself and go, what was I not telling in my story that was important? Or did my nonverbals become so defensive that it became the turnoff? You know, so there's things that obviously I can work on, but it is that case sometimes to get an advocate within the industry or within whatever it is you're working to be able to give you that extra leg up. I mean, look at Brene. She had another um, manager for other speakers come up and say, Brene, I need to have a conversation with you because you're really awesome, but you're not doing what you need to do. Right. So even she had yeah. advocate. Super important, you know, and again, as you say, because sometimes it can feel like you're, you're just taking on the whole world, right? And, and I know as well, I'm a passionate person, um, I'm emotional. So again, of course, all those things can come into play and just the subtleties of tone and cultural expectations. I mean, there's just so many layers. Um, and I think that's just a fantastic tool for us to think about that is, yeah, where, where you know, the, are there places that perhaps we really are not the best advocates for ourselves and that that's not giving our power away, um, but it's actually a smart move when somebody else can usually present it from a different perspective so that that audience can, yeah, just have a different level of awareness and a different perspective. Yep. I'm curious though, Pam, because my, where my head has gone into that, you know, is was it a male that advocated for you or another female? Um, in my industry, it was a, a male. Mm. Um, I actually, in my experience within the assessment industry, I had one female who I thought was my advocate and found out that she was actually my foe and had been doing me in the whole time, which yeah. really sad when I discovered it, it was like that shock, like what? What? <laughs> I can't believe that. Um, but yeah, it was, I've, I've had a couple at different times that were males that were just like, Oh my gosh, what you do is absolutely amazing. And no, that wasn't fair. What happened? So it was almost kind of confidence building because here's somebody outside recognizing what I was going through and I respected them from a business perspective. And then they could from male to male go toe to toe with the other group. Um, I did have one female early on, that did kind of give me words of advice at one point in a very desperate time of need. Um, but it wasn't like she really helped or become an advocate for me. It was more like, Hey, this is what you need to do to navigate this. And it was more like get small and shut up than it was yeah. 
being an advocate to really help me get through the situation. So it was interesting. You know. Yeah. And I certainly don't want to, you know, we're not going to open that, that can of worms. This might be something for an, for another topic. Um, yeah. again, unfortunately I know from my, you know, my limited career experience because I worked, you know, in international circles in the United Nations before. And then because I had this big break when I was a stay at home mom before then going into business for myself and for sure it's different, right? When you're running your own business, I, you know, I'm very fortunate that I, I choose a lot of the people that, I surround myself with and who are going to be on the team or, you know, clients that we work with. So there's a lot of difference there now. Um, but I actually asked the question, we were talking about leadership, feminine leadership. Well, actually, you know, just ex- examples of great leadership in the workplace of one of my mastermind groups. And we were, you know, we started with the, the examples, case studies of like, what does bad leadership look like and what was the impact on you? And rather unfortunately, and I think it was a coincidence, but rather unfortunately, just I think we had almost a 90% response rate with the bad examples were of other women. (laughs) Which again, you know, again, right, of course, that's just, it's not a great sample group necessarily. Those can be coincidences. I do know that, you know, unfortunately, that was the case for me when I was in the UN as well, as you say, you know, thinking that there was somebody there that was going to actually be an advocate for you and support you. And then I discovered as well that that was exactly, you know, the opposite was happening. Um, And in fact, you know, if anything, there was definitely some, you know, backstabbing going on behind my back. So I think that's a, a great topic for another day, but not one that we can, like as I say, it's a massive, massive can of worms, but it does lead me to the question of, you know, with all the experience that you've got, you know, going into different organizations and the different people that you do work with, what do you think are, you know, some of those, you know, ways that women do lead differently compared to their male counterparts? Um. Looking at, I want to say some of the dynamic female leaders, because I think some of this is like generational where I can see the ones that had issue. It's because they had to fight their way to the top. Um, When I see some of the dynamic ones now, women don't generally pursue something just for money. I think men sometimes just get in for something for money. So there's a lot of passion behind what we do. Um, Women are wired different. We're raised more for nurturing, not that all women are or that all men are not, but we, we do have more of a wiring nature to be nurturers. And so when you look at some of the top leaders, they work harder to develop the people underneath them and they pay attention to more than just, are they getting the job done, but what's happening with the person and they make that cross connect and connection to the people around them. So when I see really good female leaders, they're capitalizing on those strengths, but then they're also able to set the boundaries so that those strengths don't become the limits. So they're not like overly caring and over like whatever they've, they, they do care, but they have that ability to set a good boundary down and say, I'm going to help you. But here's, here's the line, you know? Um, I think out of the positive women ones that I've seen now, there's a, there's a really a, a new shift about being able to embrace and mentor others. I think there's a lot of that coming out. I see it at ASU now where there's a lot more women willing to try to step up and mentor other women to help them through the, so that we can help them through the hard knocks on that. Yeah. 
And I think, you know, the, to your point there, Pam, as you said, that the whole generational piece, I mean, I, you know, again, I grew up in a family where women didn't work. They weren't the breadwinners. They weren't career women. You know, I'm kind of like a little bit of the weird one because I, I started to go down the path that many other women in my family had gone down, which was kind of that stay-at-home mum, right, supporting husband in his career. And then I did this pivot and went into business for myself. And, you know, my husband actually works in the business with me now as well. So it's a, it's a big pivot in terms of kind of generationally what was expected of me and what I grew up with. So I, I do think, as you say, some of those other women before us have really had to fight their way to the top. Um, and I certainly see that with the women that we work with as well. So many of them really want to be fabulous leaders, wonderful role models. They, they are amazing advocates for other women, possibly because they didn't have that experience themselves and realize that there's a different way, you know, to, to lead. And as you say that, you know, the nurturing side and a lot of them, yes, you know, they, they understand in business that money is really important. I mean, the numbers and having good financial health in the business is, mm -hmm. is really important, but I agree with you. It's, it's not like they're driven by money and power, a lot of it is about, you know, doing great work in the world, being fulfilled, creating opportunities. And certainly, you know, again, you know, for me, one of the, one of my arguments would be for women to be, you know, frankly, you know, having greater financial ease in their businesses is that women are, are just known to be far more philanthropic um, and wanting to pay it forwards and wanting to be more generous and really... Mm -hmm about you know families and communities and and that bigger impact that they can make when they actually are more financially secure yeah i just read an article today about um came out i think two years ago from penn state there was a, a article about the different career tracks between men and women and men tend to jump right out of college and they get on career tracks and they can move and they are allowed to move from one place to another um, and pick up and put themselves into a better position, you know, and they're allowed that career track, but women are not. When women come out and they start in their career track, if they stay in one place, they can tend to move up, but they can't when they jump to other positions. They're not afforded the same luxury in that transition to moving from one place to another. It's like they start over again. And I don't know if that comes from the fact that at some point they're anticipating a female is going to still want to have children and mm -hmm. leave. And so there's just these different trajectories. And I think, again, it's one of those, as we've talked about the whole theme is when we recognize it, we can talk about it and we can do something about it is so even though neither of us went down this huge career path of keeping a job all along the way, it doesn't mean that all the experiences we've gained um, from this point, um, are not as valuable or that we can't jump into a certain tier because it's like, well, you have to work your way up the pay scale. You have to work up your pay scale. And it's like, why do I have to work my way up this pay scale if I'm doing the work that's equal to this other person? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And so yeah. how do we recognize the fact that it doesn't matter what path we've taken in our careers when we get to a certain point, we're worth the same amount. Yeah, no, totally. And again, another massive conversation. <laughs> yeah. where there's just, as you say, you know, massive disconnect. And I do, you know, I think that almost, it, it almost circles back to the beginning of our conversation today as well, where we do have to advocate for ourselves more. 
right? Um, or have other people advocate for us, particularly when it comes to, you know, negotiating pay. Um, I see that a lot with, you know, women that I've worked with as well. And so when I was in the corporate coaching, you know, their male counterparts would be going for it, going for that next promotion, you know, going for the board position. Um, and a lot of the, the, the females, I mean, really, really smart women, so hardworking, you know, and they're, you know, they've got family life and they're, and we're talking, you know, top corporate executives you know they're they're doing all the family stuff and they're and they're doing you know really well in the workplace and they're often involved in their communities as well and oftentimes when it came to going to that next level they'd quickly question themselves and you know think that they had to go down the path of getting another qualification you know and that was sort of their justification well I'll be ready when I've I need to take on this next thing and it was like hang on a minute you know you've really you know you've got the experience now this is about confidence and and really going outside of your comfort zone and and asking for what you want and what you really legitimately are worth because that's what your male counterparts are doing mhm so and, and a lot of the research has indicated that if women get the same training and negotiation, they can be just as good as the men. Yeah, love that. Listen, that feels, yeah, absolutely. I feel like that, that feels like a really great place for us to take a pause. And I would just love for us to do a little pivot into okay. just a couple of you know fun questions as we, as we close up this conversation today. Um, what I know that you're embarking on a new chapter in your life and a, and a big new, you know, move and everything. And I'm curious as to in this, as this new chapter opens, what does being rich mean to you today, Pam? Um, it, well, it's not about money other than the fact that money allows you to do the things that you love. Um, for me, being rich is having more time with family, um, being able to, pick the opportunities I want to get involved with because I know I'm going to have a better experience or more success at. And it's interesting because I, I remember even listening to an interview with Simon Sinek and it's like, have you ever had a, an experience where you didn't do well? And he goes, no, because I go to places where I know people are really passionate. So he picks what he gets involved in. Mm. And so I want to be able to direct that. And I think the other part for me, Rich, is when I'm going to move back into the training capacity for other consultants and coaches in what I've learned and what I do kind of like you, um, but with more of that specific niche of, of dealing with people and team settings and facilitating and, and the executive coaching side um, that I can help them help others. Cause yeah. I've had that at a couple of times where I've worked with someone and they go, Hey Pam, I used what you said. And I went and I did that. And it was like really awesome. And so when I get that, that's rich to me. I mean, yeah. that, I, I get that sometimes even in my past job at ASU where I've done something and you get that note and you realize that it wasn't just the impact on one person, it was that person's impact on others. And so it's that pay it forward richness to me. It's, I agree. Yeah, that beautiful ripple effect, right? It's like, put it that, that you know, let's get that, you know, the pebble in the pond and, and really see those ripples, uh, you know, coming through. Um, and a fun question, Curious in the last you know year, what's a purchase that you've made that was under a hundred dollars that's made a big difference in your life? Under a hundred dollars. Under a hundred dollars. Under a hundred. 
That's a tough one. I would have to say it's probably centered around experience. Um, mm-hmm. Now I, I will, I will, I'll put it on um, my daughter this last year in June shattered both of her heels. Um, one was in over 20 pieces and the other one was fragmented in five and she couldn't walk or do anything for like three and a half months. Oh my. And so my purchase under hundred dollars was her ticket because her goal was to go to a concert when she recovered, she wanted to walk into that concert. And so I got her the ticket to the concert and said, Hey, um, you know what? Here's your ticket. Here's your goal. Here's what you're going to meet. So to know that she actually went and got that photo of her actually walking into the concert after all she'd been through was just awesome. Oh, that's amazing. Well, that's a great story. And again, another one of like, I, I think you just demonstrated perfectly, right? That oftentimes we're very generous with other people. So, you know, as you say, to, to have that joy and pay it forward, of course, to your daughter as well, after she's gone through something like that. Um, for sure. She's never, never going to forget that moment. Pam, it is just always such a pleasure to connect with you. Thank you so much for everything that you've shared today and keeping it real and the research and your, you know, stories and and your own anecdotes and opinions. And uh, I just want to wish you a really, really, you know, successful trip across the country, um, you know, to your next chapter. And I just look forward to us staying connected and uh, seeing where we both end up and keep crossing on this path that we, uh, we've been on for many Absolutely. years now. I, I know I will be back in the Phoenix area. I've, I've got ties here, so I will be back and we'll have fun looking at all the stuff that you develop and maybe I'll be back for one of your conferences. Absolutely. Take care now. Okay. Take care. Thank you.